Hello and welcome to another episode of Brothers Creed Podcast, where we talk about motivation, experiences, and exploring the world around us. We are the Thomas Brothers, and I'm Jared. And I'm Ethan. Today we are speaking with Chad Webster. He is a uh, retired police officer. He is an author. He is a father. He is a, an excellent guy. Uh, we, we talked to him about uh, his life, his hobbies, um, about being a police officer, all the way from the academy at the beginning to um, some of the the struggles he had towards the end of his twenty year career uh, with with the riots and some uh, mental struggles that that he had with PTSD and, and a couple of things that that forced him into retirement. Uh, we had a great conversation. Um, learned how we can all become better people, uh, better better members of the community better uh, participants in our families and being aware of our of our mental health better stewards of our mental health it was very he, he advocated for that quite a bit i liked that yeah definitely so this is a great one let's get into it let's do it spartans what is your profession any man who must say i am the king is no true king what i do have are a very particular set of skills skills that make me a nightmare if I can change, and you can change, everybody can change! Let us all unite! Let us fight for a new world! A decent world! All right, today we have a special guest with us, Chad Webster. Chad, thank you so much for coming on with us. I oh, appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, no problem. So I've known Chad for uh, quite a while, uh, several years now. Uh, you are a, a father, a retired police officer, an author, um, and an all-around great guy. So we, we've been trying to get you on the podcast for, for quite some time now, uh, but finally we got you. And we have a uh, uh, kind of some good questions about your your career and, and, and the past several years, your retirement, and and really kind of asking you about your, your growth and, and personal creed as well. How many years did you serve on the force, Chad? Almost nineteen. Oh, okay. It's quite a which long time. sounds like a long time, but <laughs> during it, it really didn't feel that long. Really? Yeah. Now, did you were you the whole time here in the Charlotte area, CMPD? Yeah, I was never an officer anywhere else. It was the, my whole career in Charlotte, Mecklenburg, and I never really even wanted to be a, a cop growing up at all. I, I mean, it just seemed like kind of a far-fetched thing that wasn't for me, but like all my life, all my jobs were in customer service and I enjoyed helping people. And I thought that becoming an officer would give me the meaning that I was looking for. Plus I would be helping people. Mm-hmm. And it, it was so funny. I was actually a manager of a pool and spa store. And one of the guys from the Academy was a customer. And he came in and I like tested his pool water or something. And I was like, man, say something to him, say something to him. And I chickened out. I was like, oh, I should have said something to him. And he goes out to his car and like 30 seconds later, he comes back in and he's like, hey, I forgot to ask you a question. Ask me. And then I said, hey, I meant to ask you a question. And we started talking about the academy. And a year, year or so later, you know, because it takes almost that long to do a, a background check. You know, I was I was in the academy. How old were you? Uh, Twenty seven when I started. Nice. 
Is that yeah. is that kind of older or is that? It is. It, it is a little bit older. I wasn't the oldest guy in my academy class, uh, but I mean, usually, you know, these kids know right out of college, like, hey, I'm going to college for uh, criminal, criminal justice, justice yeah. and, and they know that that's what they're going to do. And, you know, they're 22 years old when they when they hit the street. Wow. I wasn't mature enough at 22 to do this job so I, I think the timing was just right did you feel like going in with a little bit of uh you know kind of rounding closer to 30 that that gave you kind of a uh, maybe an edge or, or, or a leg up in in wisdom wisdom <laughs> or, or experience uh, i would say a life experience mm-hmm. leg up you know uh it's I mean, you see, obviously, the more you see, the more you can understand about people, the longer you live. And I, I just, like I said, I wouldn't, would not have been ready and I wouldn't have had enough life experience coming right out of college. So it was probably great for some, for some guys, definitely physically, you know, you're coming out of college and you're taking care of yourself and you can be in great shape and, you know, 27 is not old, but, you know, it was it was tough to keep up with some of the, some of the younger guys. Yeah. So, so you were, um, you, did you start as a patrol officer and then how did that kind of develop as you, your, your 19 years on the force? Uh, cause I know kind of towards the end you got more into, uh, kind of a community relationship relations role. How did, how did that unfold? Yeah. You start out in patrol. That, that, that's where we all, all start. So I did several years of that. Absolutely loved it. Going from call to call to call, uh, staying busy. I loved it. Um, and one of the reasons I got into law enforcement was because of domestic violence, you know, and wanting to make a difference there. So from my patrol, I started doing more domestic violence stuff and focusing on that. I was a uh, training officer for several years where I would train the the rookies out of the academy. Really enjoyed that. Another reason to stay busy and get in as many calls and as many big calls as as you can. So that was a lot of fun. What what kind of drew Uh, you into domestic violence? um, It's just something that's always irked me. Yeah. Uh, That cycle of these you know, mainly women that are caught in these situations. And it's, to me, it is, even if it's not physical, it is just one of the most pathetic crimes. You know, I mean, I don't know how you can look at yourself in the mirror knowing that you're physically, psychologically manipulating, you know, your, this female that you're supposed to be caring for. I, I just, an yeah. abuse, abuse so of that, power. I was very passionate. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, and unfortunately, as time went on, you know, I really only felt like every now and then I was making a difference mm-hmm. uh, because so many of the real domestic violence doesn't get reported. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like uh, rape and sexual assault. Yep. The, the, the real bad ones never get 
the attention that they should. Oh yeah. Uh, and then a lot of times domestic violence court is used for a back and forth, whether it's about children or custody or the house or, you know, so there's a lot of tit for tat kind of stuff that goes on that you really don't feel like you're making a difference. But then after so many cases where you get, get one here and there that, that you really help it, it it's worthwhile. Yeah. Now, now Chad, you might not know this about me, but I'm a data analyst by trade, uh, and our data scientists, I guess that's what my degree says. But, uh, I'm curious as to, I'm sure that over the years you see different trends in different types of calls, like whether those be uh, domestic violence or surges in drug usage or uh, child abuse or cr- like shootings or different things like that. Did you see any types of patterns and changes over the, over the time that you were working in Charlotte? It's interesting because you could almost tell what time of the year it was <laughs> by looking at the calls. Really? Wow. You know, and I and I patrolled around, you know, UNCC for years. Okay. So, you know, you'd see a lot more domestic calls around the holidays. You know, people are off school, off work, they're at home, families in town. It, it, you know, people are are drinking more. You know, you see a lot more domestics, and then you know, over the summer, you see lots of noise complaints and assaults and like the bars and restaurants would be busy. And, and in the winter overnight, it's just so quiet until every now and then, you know, something huge happens, but, hmm. uh, and you get all the robberies during the summer. Really? Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, people don't like moving around out. when it's cold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you could always, uh, almost tell what time it was. Because you could say, all right, all the all the drug dealers are getting up. It's it's eleven o'clock. It's noon. So you start getting these uh, calls that are drug related or wow. complaints about whatever happened the night before. People are waking up, realizing, you know, what what happened the previous night. So it's and, and of course the the warmer it is, the crazier it is, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I'm a firm believer in, in full moons making people crazy. Let's, let's put it that way. <laughs> Women giving birth and people going nutso. Yep. <laughs> Interesting. That's wild. Yeah, and, and it's and it's and, and you know if you're in, you know if you're analyzing data all the time, uh, there's the data and then how it's presented. Uh-huh. You know, so uh i always say there's three kinds of lies there's lies damn lies and statistics so <laughs> i think mark uh, i think mark I twain t- said that <laughs> yeah i never took much stock in you know and the cities want to see a reduction in crime mm-hmm. and but at the same time they don't want to get harassed yeah you know and, and it's a it's a hard juggling act to get out there and do your job and do your best to reduce crime. And a lot of times in order to do that, you have to be proactive. And when you're proactive, you know, you generate complaints from people that feel like they're getting harassed or they're out, you know, we're out looking for specific things and targeting people. But then if you don't do that, it's like, why are these cops sitting around drinking coffee, not doing anything? Yeah. So, and that's, that's one of the things that really wore on me over the years was, was kind of being caught in that catch 22 
And that's how I got into more of the community stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how did that develop? So, you, you know, you were a patrol officer for, for a while and then I kind of sidetracked us from, from your story. So how did you get into the community side? Well, there were actually, it was a community coordinator position opened up and a buddy of mine was, uh, he had the other position and he's like, Hey, I just told my supervisor, you're going to be the next coordinator. I was like, Oh, okay. So it kind of, you know, I had to go through the process and an interview and, and all that kind of stuff and got the position and it, uh, it was a lot different. You know, I wasn't answering calls for service and 911 calls like I was, but I, I really liked being able to have these personal uh, interactions with people that weren't enforcement actions, mm-hmm. you know, to let people see that, you know, hey, we're not all robots, you know, yeah. we're actually people inside this uniform, you know, and then we got onto the kids stuff and reading the kids and uh a lot of stuff that can't be captured statistically yeah you know or 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 it can maybe over the years so it was i felt like it was great work but it's hard to measure so city council can't say you know all the coordinators at cmpd were able to keep this number of kids you know off the street or from Mm -hmm. you know getting into crime it's nothing tangible that that you can say made a difference so it's hard to to realize that it's still making a difference and then when and then when budget cuts come through i'm sure that that's one of the first place they but they, they cut budgets is uh where they can't see statistical increase or track down with specific right. numbers yeah i mean because when crime rises you don't want to hear about officers reading to kids yeah you know but at the same time I mean, when we were doing our Bears Behind the Badge program, where we'd go into these elementary schools and read, and we would bring stuffed animals and, and say, hey, this is your reading buddy. You try to read to your reading buddy every night. Uh, we, we would have kids in tears when we arrived in their classroom because they were afraid of us hmm. for whatever reason. You know, a lot of times it's because the their police parents. have been called to their house yeah. or somebody's been locked up. But they'd go from tears to like hugging us and hanging on us, you know, by the time we left. And that's in within 30 to 60 minutes. Wow. Yeah. So that that was always rewarding. I, uh, <clears throat> I heard something sometime that that uh, that I've actually re- really kind of taken to heart. And, you know, a lot of parents will, you know, when they're when their kids act up or when their kids aren't acting right, they'll say, you know, well, I'm going to I'm going to have the police come and take you to jail. And they'll like threaten, right. they'll threaten that to their kids that the police are going to come and they're going to take you away and throw you in jail. And, you know, I was, I was listening to something several years ago and it was like, don't, don't do that because, you know, kids need to have someone that they can in an, in an emergency, if they, you know, need help from something that they see, they want to, if they see a police officer, they should be able to run up to that person and know that they're going to help them. And not to fear and think that, oh, if I, you know, a police officer is just going to take me to jail and, and then, you know, take me away from my family. And so it was just, it was kind of like a warning to parents to kind of like build police officers up a little bit. You know, nobody's perfect, obviously, but don't make your kids afraid of them by threatening that to them. 
Yeah, we used to harp on that at every community meeting. You know, don't don't even kid around with them because God forbid they do need an officer. They they need to be able to come over to us. Yeah. You know, and we and we would always tell kids, hey, if you can't find a police officer, you know, find a lady with kids, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. something like along those lines. But it's not even cool to joke about it with kids because, you know, some cops are really intimidating. You know, I mean, I was like five foot and a half, 170 pounds. I wasn't intimidating, but some guys are huge and jacked and tattoos and and can be the nicest guys mm-hmm. and need to be intimidating in, in other ways. So you don't want to add that on top of, you know, hey, the police are just going to take you away if you don't behave. Yeah. Some, you know, some and, cops and look like Ron, Ronnie saying, Coleman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and you, you're actually weakening yourself as a parent when you say, well, if you don't listen to me, I'll have to call the yeah. police. And we used to get those calls in the mornings when kids wouldn't go to scale, school. Huh. It's like, why are you calling us? Yeah. They have no reason to listen to you now until you call us and we arrive. Yeah. You, you've totally weakened your stance as a parent that's in charge. Yeah. So it, it's detrimental in that way as well. Yeah. I, I, one of the cool things that that I, I've known several police officers, uh, some actually, I know a few CMPD officers right now, uh, but you get such a breadth of experiences. I mean, it's like you're out on the streets, talking with people, meeting with people, you're in all these different experiences. Um, I was wondering if you could share two experiences with, with us. One, uh, could you share an experience where you saw something that was kind of miraculous or that you just, um, that was just maybe like a, a really cool, positive miracle type of experience. And then I've got to ask this other question. Did you ever see anything like paranormal or anything like that while you were on the beat? Okay. So one of the, the coolest things, uh, I, I don't know if that's the coolest thing, but one thing that really stands out to me, was there was a call we got about a dog attack. This dog attacked a lady running. I think it was a pit bull. Like tore her arm up and an officer got there and had to shoot the dog. Well, if you know anything about shooting a dog, you don't want to shoot its head because literally the bullet will travel along that skull and out and the dog will run off. Oh, really? You, you know, you, ha- you really have to shoot it in the body. Oh, really? Huh. Uh, which is awful, but, you know, you're getting attacked by a pit bull. You're just out for a jog. Yeah. You know, an officer shows up. And so they had, he sh- the officer shot the dog, and it ran away. But the lady was safe, and she got in the ambulance and was getting treatment. And we actually had to set up basically a crime scene in this neighborhood. Well... The dog that was shot didn't really run home, but kind of ran near home and then sat down, you know, not feeling well due to the gunshot. Well, then the owner finds out the police shot their dog. Has no idea that it attacked someone. Uh, People were complaining that these dogs were running around the neighborhood consistently, but it's hard to feel bad. Yeah. (laughs) 
for <laughs> you, I mean, you feel bad for the dog because they're not being taken care of. You feel bad for the lady that got, you know, attacked. Uh-huh. So I'm on in the crime scene on the inside of the police line tape. And the owner of the dog has heard that we've shot his dog. And when you hear the police shot your dog, it's all police. Yeah. So everybody's responsible. So he starts to come under the police tape. And that is a misdemeanor. Mm-hmm. And he is fuming. Rightfully so, because he doesn't know all the information yet. And I was about to arrest him. I was about to grab him because he was coming towards me in a threatening manner, screaming, pointing, yelling. And he wasn't listening to me to stay behind the tape. So I, I, in actuality, had legal right to take him to the ground and handcuff him. Yeah. But he came at me and I just remember feeling that wasn't the right thing to do in this situation. And I, I just put my hand on his chest and said, hang on, hang on, hang on. Not the last thing you want to say to somebody that's all riled up. Let's calm down. down. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've never been one to say that. So I just had this immediate feeling that he didn't know all the information and me locking him up for this while illegal wasn't the right thing to do. And I just remember feeling that so strongly and that's not something I normally would have done. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not miraculous, no, that's, that's, but it's yeah. uh, just sometimes you get those feelings and you don't want to ignore them. Yeah. So I, I really felt good after that because it's so easy to forget, you know, I, I'm, looking at this whole situation from all the information I have. Yeah. And he's looking at it from all the information he has. All he knows is somebody came to his house freaking out that the police shot his dog. Yeah. I like that so because it's got, like if you – that's what a multifaceted police officer was what we want as a community. If We don't want just a hammer because then the only thing a hammer knows how to do is is, is smashing a nail. So someone who has very, a varying different techniques of – of dealing with people is exactly the type of police officer that we need. So that's a very good story. Right. And, and who knows, you know, if I had been the first one to arrive and, you know, what I've been able to shoot the dog, how would I have handled it? Yeah. You know, it's just very cool how sometimes well, that dog would be dead. If you'd have handled officers. it. <laughs> 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 I mean, you just don't know, you know, the right officer got there at the right time. And, had it been me that arrived there first, I might not have done the right thing. And had that officer been in my shoes, he might not have done what I did. Yeah. So, you know, there's sometimes bigger things at play when when you're when you're dealing with you know craziness like that. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, what was the other question? Oh, so you said any something? any kind of paranormal experiences did you have on your 19 years? <sighs> you know, I can't really, I can't really think of any. Um, a lot of the university area though was just all new stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was just constantly, you know, I've heard of other things, you know, in different parts of Charlotte where officers are like, Nope, I don't go into that building or, you know, I don't do this or that, but not, you know, not really, which 
That's good. Would have been cool, <laughs> I think. Well, you're not driving over uh, any old battlefields or anything like that, so. <laughs> right, right. You know, what's so funny, though, is you have, you know, police are people, and we all have our little ticks, and we all have our little fears, and, like, some of my buddies are, like, you know, there's these, there's these bad A guys, you know, and they're afraid of spiders. <laughs> yeah. You know, or they're afraid of snakes or, you know, and they're like going into these situations where most normal people would be afraid. Uh And then they're like freaking out, you know, if there's a spider or (laughs) it's just so funny that, you know, the real, the real you, you know, comes through sometimes. So that, that was some of, some of the funniest, you know, things I've seen just people being people and they just happen to be wearing a uniform that's maybe, great. Maybe, maybe that's what the title of the episode should be cops are people too right? <laughs> yeah well you know what's funny you say that but uh you know it's one of the few professions where it's easy to label an entire profession based on the actions of one individual mm-hmm. uh, and and that's that's a hard thing to do in a lot of other jobs yeah. You know, if you hear about a teacher somewhere, you know, assaulting a student, you don't say, oh, geez, teachers are just out there beating our kids. And, yeah. you know, you look at it as, wow, that one teacher, what a jerk, you yeah. know. Uh, and you say that about a lot of things. Yeah. You know, you, you talk about that one individual. But for some reason, when it's when it is a brotherhood and a sisterhood and you're all wearing you know, a badge and a gun and it's just easy to, to group us in. And that's the last thing that the general public wants done to them. And it's one of the first things that's done to, to officers. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time in our specific community, trying to build that trust, trying to let people know uh, that we were people. And I constantly try to use my sense of humor um, probably too much and maybe inappropriately sometimes, but you know, to let people know yeah. that we're, we're people too. Yeah. And we, I mean, we put a lot of time and energy into that. Not just a robotic enforcement arm of the government. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and it's easy to say, it's easy to feel targeted even when you just get pulled over for speeding. Yeah. You know, it's like, why me there? I saw this other car and blah, blah, blah. Well, I, saw you were going fast i turned the radar on and i you know i got you i didn't know who you were when i pulled you over yeah you know it's not something personal and then you ask the person that got pulled over oh who was the officer i don't know you know you don't think about it being an individual you just think the cops pulled you over yeah And, and we write our names on the citation so you know who it is and who you're dealing with and that that was the first thing I always did on a traffic stop. I said who I was, who I worked for, and why I pulled you over. Mm-hmm. So there was no confusion, no question. I never did the, well, do you know why I pulled you over? You know, <laughs> and trying to get them to say why they got pulled over. Uh, it doesn't put people at ease. You're already nervous as crap because you're getting pulled over. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. I made it, I tried to make it as much of an interaction as I could. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Humanize it. Definitely. Yeah. You know, and it's people, you know, we get neighborhoods where people complain about all the speeding. 
And then we go out and run radar and run LIDAR and pull people over. And then they complain that the, the police are all pulling everybody over in the neighborhood. And, you know, nine times out of 10, you'll pull over one of the people that were complaining about speeding. And, and it's, it's, it's again, one rules of those for thee, not for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I see other people speeding. Go get them. I, I can do what I want. Exactly. Yeah. So I know it's been it's been about a year, year and a half since since you retired. I know that um, you you left the force uh, due to several different reasons. Would you be able to kind of walk us through the 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 lead up to that and, and what happened there? So you know, over the course of almost nineteen years and being in patrol and just wearing the uniform, you see uh, the worst of people. You see the yep. worst situations, uh, and it wears on you, mm-hmm. you know, and we're in this tough guy, tough girl environment where you're weak if it bothers you. And a lot of times you don't really have time to think about it because you're going from call to call, shift to shift. You don't really get to process it, or if you if you do, you compartmentalize it and you don't really deal with it. So I was getting worn down already. And then during the the last riots in Charlotte in 2020, I just had a, I don't want to say snap, but I was on the front line of the riots. They're throwing mortars and frozen water bottles and fireworks and we were in a line and I was surrounded and we were told to stand down and I felt, uh, I mean, I was scared, you know, I, I was really scared. One of the few times I was truly scared during my career and, you know, we were told not to do anything. And I remember laughing at the situation and I'm like, this isn't a normal response to this situation. You know, why, why did I laugh? But, you know, then we were pushing people back and clearing streets and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I was on, I was on the bike, the bicycle riot team. So we're riding all over the areas, using our bikes to push people back and create lines. And, uh, you know, what we normally do when there's riots and protests and, this time before even that, you know, I had people, you know, inch from my face screaming just all sorts of profanities and just the worst things that I'd ever heard almost, well, almost some of the worst things <laughs> I'd ever heard as a cop, you know, being screamed at me and you just have to take it. You just sit there. You try to let it go in one ear and out the other, and you look out for fellow officers who, if it looks like they're uh, getting agitated, you try to replace them with someone who, you know, is fresh on the line. Uh, and but in this case, I, I didn't feel like I needed that, and I was fine and continued on working, and then started having trouble sleeping didn't want to go to work, started having nightmares, uh, run down, didn't want to fall asleep because of the nightmares. Uh, I found myself afraid 
and panicking. You know, I've never had panic attacks in my life. And I'll wake up in a cold sweat, panicking, hard, you know, could hardly breathe. You know, I didn't know what was going on at all. And I ended up going to the doctor. And at first it was, you know, sounds like I have anxiety and blah, blah, blah. And then we started putting the not wanting to be around crowds, having the nightmares and the, the night sweats and panic that I'd never had before. And started drinking to kind of numb that what's going on thing and that didn't help and then i was officially diagnosed with ptsd and my primary physician my therapist and psychologist or psychiatrist were were like you're done you're done in this profession you know this sorry to say but this is not something that you can do anymore and i was like what you know i couldn't couldn't believe it and it got worse and got worse i'd actually didn't leave my bedroom for six weeks wow that's tough yeah i just i didn't want to be around people i didn't want to talk to anybody i was drinking you know, not sleeping, but wanting to sleep, but not wanting to sleep because of nightmares. Yeah. And oh, with family and know, kids was, and everything else. I mean, that's, that's it's a low, low spot. Brutal. And it's, you know, it was, it was just like one day I was good. The next day I wasn't. And it was crazy. Like, oh, hey, by the way, your career's over. And your kids are seeing you fall apart, basically. You know, my wife was just like, what, you know, someone who's always trying to help people is looking at her husband like, I don't even know what to do. Yeah. You know, and and people would ask me and I'm like, I don't know what I need. I don't know what you could do. And it was so frustrating. Initially, it was so embarrassing. Um, You know, it's not like I'm a, a tough guy, but I never saw myself you know, this happening, you know, anything like this happening to me. So that was a hard pill to swallow. And then hearing your career's over from, you know, three different sources and then having to go file paperwork that says, you know, Hey, uh, due to mental health issues and PTSD, I have to medically retire from this job. And, and that, that was, you know, I'm summarizing here, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, very quickly, but it was, Let's see, it'll be two years ago this June. Hmm. And I am like just now good. Like this year, I'm good. I've been taking medications, which I hate doing. You know, weekly therapy uh, still. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, over time, I've realized there's there's nothing for me to be embarrassed about, you know, I shouldn't be any more embarrassed about PTSD than, than I am for getting the flu. Yep. You know, it's, it's not something I've done. It was a perfect storm that, you know, several other officers experienced as well. And maybe they're perfectly fine. Maybe they're not. And they just can't admit it. You know, maybe they're yeah. still going to work, 
you know, wondering what's what's wrong and not being, you know, the best version of themselves. So I, I realized that it's not weak for this to happen. Yeah. It's weak to not get help. Yeah, totally. You know, it, it, it's strong to say, wow, I, I'm I'm not how I was and I need help for it. Yeah. We- and that's hard. That's hard to do. Absolutely. We did an interview with a, a guy, he calls himself the, the tactical chaplain, uh, and he's a, a retired police officer, and he he's kind of like a chaplain that works with police officers who, who to talk about mental health, to talk about this kind of stuff, because he says a lot of times you get this tough guy mentality, and, and you overlook stuff, how you feel, you overlook this trauma that you're getting, and it burns people out, and, it, and they'll turn to all kinds of stuff to try to cover up uh, the pain that they're feeling, so... Uh, I, I appreciate you sharing that with us. It's, uh, it's so true. And I mean, like you think about these riots and stuff and sometimes we see, you know, on the news how they're mostly peaceful, but the businesses are burning in the background and people are getting hurt. <laughs> you know, I'm being facetious there, but yeah, I'll see an say that, but these entire communities are being destroyed. And sometimes I think, Oh man, those poor businesses that are being destroyed, but really the poor police officers that are there, being told to do basically nothing because of the politics of the situation and, and they're suffering too from this whole situation. And so I think that can be overlooked. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, I'm all for, you know, getting your voice out there. Yeah. And I feel like probably the majority of protesters that um, are from a city they're protesting in don't want to destroy their own city. Yeah. But there are so many paid protesters brought in from all over the country. You know, they do this professionally. Yeah. And, and that is not that's kind of anti-politics. Like, let's everybody wants attention on it. But do you really want the attention to go from what you're trying to stand up for to, you know, burning buildings and cities getting destroyed and people getting needlessly arrested and hurt and uh it's like how did, that's the sad part of it. Yeah, it's yeah. like how did this pallet of bricks get here on the corner in the middle of the city? It's like yeah. I mean also, that's that's one thing yeah. that, that they have we, we have people go out all over the place looking for things like that that protesters will stash, you know, all over. Yeah. You know, whatever it may be. Um so So I know you said it, it ties up a lot of resources. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I know you said that like when when the kind of the I guess your leaders told you just, you know, don't, don't do anything or stand down or whatever else you said. You kind of laughed internally or maybe out loud. Um, how, how did that make you feel? Did you kind of feel like, well, why am I even here if I'm not going to do anything? It's almost like the, the, the police being here, if we can't do anything is almost just riling the people up more. I don't know. How'd the, how'd you feel about like that? Go and be punished basically yeah. is what they're saying. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's true. And there's a lot of situations where we knew there was going to be protests and, you know, our upper command staff have to decide, are we going to send them out there in riot gear? Are we going to send them out without it? Are we going to just send out the bike units? Because it does uh, invoke a reaction. Mm-hmm. And... You know, me just standing there outside of uniform in normal clothes is nothing. I put that uniform on and I'm standing there. Okay, it's a little different now. Now I have on riot gear and a helmet and all that. 
that's another story. Less you know? less personal, so more of a, a robot. Right. Or, now it's like, oh, you want trouble? You're prepared for trouble? Yeah. You're going to get it kind of thing. So they yeah. were always juggling, you know, our safety, their safety, and what kind of message we wanted to send. But as far as the laugh goes, it was, I feel, my body's uh, central nervous system response to something I didn't have control over. Yeah. And that's what my body had to do to keep going that night. Yeah. I, I can only imagine, too, kind of the, I mean, the feeling that your wife and even your kids are feeling. I mean, you, you, they're probably at home worried like crazy that, that even more that dad's going to come home in these types of situations. I mean, I, I can't even imagine, number one, how you would feel, but also how how your wife would feel in that type or of situation. Or the effects of what the situation would, would have. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I hate to say it, but usually the police are the last thing you think about when there's big events or, or things like this. Yeah. Like when there's a Carolina Panther game, you don't think about all the officers that are making sure the area around the stadium and inside the stadium and directing traffic and, you know, after a team wins the World Series or the Super Bowl, like how many cops are out there trying to keep it safe for everybody that's celebrating. And Mm -hmm. you just don't think about them or their families as much because you're like, oh, most of us are just like, well, I'm going to the game. Yay, we won. I want to celebrate. Yeah. You you know, you you don't really think about it, but it does... It's very similar to a military family, you know, except that we're we're home yeah. and we don't see necessarily as cra- crazy stuff as as active members in, in the military will see, but it's along those same lines. Yeah. And it's I mean, I was you know, my kids and my wife are looking at me, I don't want to go through a day sober. Um, you know, I'm crying one minute, I'm laughing the next, I'm not saying anything the next minute, you know. I'm up all night watching TV. I'm sleeping all day. Then I'm sleeping all night. And why isn't daddy coming out of his room? And, uh, it was, mm, yeah, I th- know, then, it, it's, I was going to say, go I, I, I think there's, I mean, I guess I have, have no idea, but you would probably have a better idea than, than anyone. But I, I would suspect that there's, there's lots of people that struggle with that. I mean, just mental health in general is something that affects everyone to a certain extent. And especially, you know, like you said, among potentially military professionals or, you know, police officers or anyone else who is exposed to just continuous traumatic events. Um, you know, I don't know. It's just it would be very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, I kind of equate it to car maintenance. If you, if, you know, if you're not putting gas in the car, you're not you know, changing the oil, you're not getting tune-ups, you're not rotating your tires, you know, your car's going to run like crap. Yeah. And our mental health is the same way. You know, you have to treat it the same way. There's maintenance to do. There's things you have to come to terms with. There's things you should be talking about. And when you don't, you know, you, your, your car breaks down, you break down. Yeah. And that's why I don't think people should be, you know, embarrassed about mental health issues yeah it's maintenance it's just like anything else you wouldn't you know you wouldn't want to stop being in shape because uh you know i, I don't know where i'm going with that well, so well, like, you're, you're, you know, if you're you not in shape you can't yourself. be an athlete like you can't be expected to do athletic right. things and play on the panthers carolina panthers 
if you're not in shape. And so to be a police officer and not be in mental shape, that's like you're going to break a bone or you're going to break something in your brain because you're not ready to confront all those traumas that are happening all the time. So did... Uh, yeah, and that's... And that, that's a, a, I've, I've realized in my... I don't want to say recovery, but in my healing and my mm-hmm. process here, how related uh, physical self-care is to mental self-care. Yeah. You know, sitting around doing nothing, not being in motion allows your mind to do the same thing. You know, your mind gets lazy and weak and out of shape. And we need to take care of both of those things. You know, we, we need to take care of ourselves physically, spiritually, mentally. And when you don't, you're going to feel that wear and tear. Yeah. So did uh, did the city or the PD, did they have the same mentality of uh, mental sickness is equivalent to physical sickness or physical injury as far as retirement goes? No, and that was, well, I mean, we do a lot of uh, education about mental illness. And I was actually a member of our crisis intervention team that, you know, we would specifically respond to people having a mental health crisis. And we're real big on making ourselves aware of those situations and educated on it for the public. But I think as a profession, we don't do a good enough job taking care of ourselves in, in that regard. And that's something that needs to improve. And when I came to my supervisors about what was happening, I had to fill out, a, you know, an injury report. And this injury report is specifically designed for a physical injury. And it's not designed for a mental injury. So that was frustrating. And during the course of retiring, I, instead of just giving my statement of what happened one time, I had to give it several times and relive it. And that was not good for my mental health and for my healing. So I kept having to relive that night over and over just to tell these people you know, someone from CMPD, someone from the city, someone from risk management, you know, it was having to say it over and over. And yeah, it's traumatic. Like, yeah. That's my therapist is like, you can't say this story anymore. Oh yeah. You can't. And when it came to, uh, workers comp, I wouldn't give a statement again. And okay. So, Officer Webster refusing to give a statement. How are we going to give him, you know, workers' comp if he won't even give a statement? Mm-hmm. You know, I've already given statements. Can't you use the statements I've given? You know, so that whole process needs to change, not only in police departments, but probably everywhere. Yeah. You, you can't have a, a one size fits all for physical and mental issues, mm-hmm. it just doesn't make sense. Yep, totally. And even when the the city had me re had to have me reevaluated after I'd been retired for 
six or seven months, I had to take it to my psychiatrist and every question on there was pretty much geared towards a physical injury. And I'm like, this is the wrong size for me. You know, this is not like a massive gap. You guys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it had been my knee, you know, I'd be going to physical therapy or I'd have surgery and, you know, be rehabbing my, my physical injury. And that's what all these questions are about. You know, can he physically do the job now? But instead they're yeah, asking you physically they're, do it. Right. They're asking you over and over again. It's like it's like having a, a, a torn ligament in your knee and then them saying, Hey, we want you to jump up and down on that one knee to show us that it's injured every single time you had to go it's the same Before thing. It's healed. They have you rehash right. all this stuff mentally and they, they just don't realize that they're causing harm every single time they you know, make you rehash every single little detail of every single thing that happened. Yeah. The 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 stigma of being a weak person because of a mental health issue, we, we need to change it. Yeah. You know, there's so many other things that people are out there standing up for that, you know, that's great. I may not agree with them all. I may not disagree with them all. Um, and they, a lot of them only apply to a small portion of the population, but mental health, you know, that could potentially be anyone and everyone. Yep. So, so I, I think making it more aware that it's it's not anything you did or and it's not your fault that you're in that situation. I mean, that's like saying, you know, someone has a tra- traumatic brain injury because of a car accident and it's their fault. You know, yeah. why do you have a traumatic brain injury? Uh, well, I didn't choose it. You know, it, it's. Yeah, exactly. So now two years after the fact, all that's been settled. Uh, they, uh, you're, you're, you're wrapped all that up with CMPD, with the city and all that kind of stuff. Yep. That's all over and done with. Uh, I got my, uh, settlement with the city. I have my, um, just my retirement disability. Uh, I'll still have to be reevaluated periodically. Uh, I'm still in weekly mm-hmm. therapy, uh, but that's going that's going pretty good. I'm hoping to reduce the number of times I have to see my therapist. I've reduced some medication and just gone to one medication that's specifically for PTSD, and so far that seems to be going well. So. You know, living at the beach, not in Charlotte, mm-hmm. you know, helps a lot. I don't have those triggers yep, of, yep. of of being in that area, which was a big issue early on. Uh, just being around where I worked, you know, wasn't wasn't good for me. So yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, you know, how? What are some things that you've done to, I guess, uh, healthily? cope with any do you have do you have hobbies i know i know you are a published author did you do you find yourself kind of attracted to other things to help cope with what you were going through mentally so yeah i mean working out yeah you, you know that's one of my big priorities now uh and, and giving my whole self to therapy uh is a big part of it too. You know, a lot of people 
don't want to be that exposed or show that kind of a weakness. And to me, that's like, you know, saying, oh, I want to run a marathon, but I'm only going to run a half a mile at a time. And then when the marathon gets there, you're frustrated. You can't run the 26.2 miles. Like, well, you haven't been training to get to that point. So it's pointless to, you know, you get out what you put in when it comes to therapy. So, and I've stayed busy. Uh, You know, I was driving my wife around for her real estate appointments, Mm -hmm. bringing the kids here and there. Uh, Recently started back up with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, which I did for years and then stopped. Uh, To write actually was one of the reasons I had uh, uh, put a hold on jujitsu. So really just taking care of myself physically and mentally, like I talked about before, has made a a huge impact on my mental health. I like that. And unfortunately, being in that weird headspace, being creative was the last thing on my mind. So I haven't, you know, I had my two Mystery Muffin and Soda Pop Sleuth books published a while back. I had finished another uh, fiction piece that didn't get picked up by my publisher, which I'm still trying to get published by somebody else. And I have vowed that I'm going to write a story about a retired officer with PTSD who moves to the beach and starts a private investigation office. So that's, that's my current work. Cool. Cool. I think, I think that's an awesome outlet. I've always, uh, you know, been really intrigued by kind of that outlet of writing. And I know you did some of the writing on, um, kind of as you were doing some of these, uh, I guess side work as a police officer uh, and you had a little bit of time, you know, late at night when things were a little bit quiet to kind of think and be creative and stuff like that. Um, so you, you have two books out right now currently, right? Yes. Yeah. There's two mystery muffin and soda pop salute. There's the first book, which is called uh, the legend of Mr. Creepy. And the second one is the ghost of Crippler's Creek and mystery and soda are just, they solve neighborhood mysteries you know mystery is the the daughter of a of a police officer Uh and it's kind of what what age group what age group is it is it catered towards i i think it's the lex the whatever that's called the lexa score or something it's fourth grade but it's it's fourth to sixth grade probably yeah yeah excellent um but we've 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 heard from kids much older and grandparents that, you know, enjoyed it. So, yeah. um, that's neat. You know, whatever. Yeah. It, it was a that's lot cool. of fun. It's a lot of work. Yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> well, Chad, it's so great to see you doing, doing well and, and continuing to work on yourself. Uh, I, I think that that's such an example to all of us, uh, to really just work on ourselves. I think at all the listeners and myself too, I'm, as you're talking, I'm kind of like, kind of doing a mental, um, maybe checklist, like maybe, you know, maybe, maybe how's my mental health, you know, with, with all this COVID stuff and then this, all this vaccine stuff and the war going on. And there's so many things that are going on right now. It's just like, and then within my own house, I've got so much going on that maybe, 
maybe a mental health tune-up would be good. So uh, I, I appreciate that encouragement. Yeah, I, I think if we all did that more often, just kind of a check-in, you know, with, with some of my therapy, we call uh, EMDR, where you basically go within yourself and you do body scans. And where do you feel this and why? And then, you know, that opens up a whole, you know, mess of, of things to talk about. And there's so much out there that we just cannot control. And when you start looking at the things you can and focusing on those things, you, you almost eliminate that helplessness feeling. You feel empowered. You, you know, you start taking care of yourself. And you don't get to that like low point or you, you realize when you start to go down, like, hey, whoa, I need to take, you know, a, a step back. You know, if, when we when we work out and we do physical activities, we need to take days off. Yep. Yeah. You know, sometimes you just need a mental health day, you know, and like you said, with all that's going on, if if you can take care of yourself, you know, self-care isn't selfish. Yeah. I like that. You know, it, it's just not. And we do so many things every day where we're afraid to say this or afraid to say that and don't want people to know this or don't want to be honest about that. And then we're the ones that suffer for it because we carry that with us all the time and it builds up every day. You know, and if you don't let some of that go or deal with it, you, you can find yourself in, in a really bad spot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Chad. I mean, you've shared a, a lot of good, great experiences with this. I'm sure there's, uh, you know, people out there that are listening that have had maybe similar, similar experiences or just that, uh, that day to day monotony sometimes can just be so, so I guess so, yeah, so grinding and so heavy that people just you need to have that check in. So, um, yeah. Finally, kind of towards the end here, we always like to ask our uh, our guests on the podcast. You know, the, the name of the podcast is a brother's creed, right? We're all trying to to build our own personal creeds, and a creed is a a set of beliefs or, or principles that guides someone's actions. Um, yeah, it can be a a scripture or a mantra or a quote or something, some principles that we live by. Would you be able to share a little bit of uh, with us and the listeners, a little bit of your personal creed? Well, one of my things that I, I think is a big deal is perspective. And the, I think the more perspective we have, the better that we understand things. And when we can see things outside of our own bubble, uh, we're doing ourselves and everyone around us a favor. Uh, and everybody has opinions, you know, and we base that on the information that we have. And the more information that we can gather, the more informed of an, an opinion or an idea that, that we can share with others. And you're going to find what you look for. You know, if you're looking for, uh, conflict, you're looking for the bad things that happen, you're focusing on the things that make you upset or that don't go your way, that's going to be your life. And if you focus on the good and the, like I said, the things you can control and those closest to you, 
you're you're going to be so much happier. You're going to do so much more for yourself and for your family, friends, and those that are just you know around you. And that's what I think we owe to ourselves first and foremost. And then being that example should hopefully you know bleed off into other people and say, well, hey, I I would prefer to focus on the good and be happy as, as much, you know, choose happiness mm-hmm. and it is a choice, but when you're doing all those other things, it's a lot easier to make that choice. I like that. Yeah. Uh, perspective. <laughs> so important. I think every single, you know, you just got to take a step away. That's when the, sometimes I like just getting out in the woods or out in nature gives you a little bit of a perspective on life. Just in a quiet, quiet Absolutely. Space. Yeah. I mean, we need to, disconnect sometimes yeah. and whatever that, you know, that might be different for, for a lot of people. And that, and that's, that's another thing, perspective. Some people may hate the woods. Okay. You don't have you know, find what your escape is, mm-hmm. what, what your break is and, and do that. And like I said, self-care is not selfish. And we, we put that off so much that we're, we're just doing ourselves a big disservice. Yeah. It reminds me of the, the quote, your, your vibe attracts your tribe, right? So it's yeah. kind of like what, what, yeah. what you put out there is what's going to come back around and, you know, try to try to be the one that puts out positivity in the world so that that can make its way back around. Yeah. Right. And you know what? Some people are really annoyed by that. Some people are like, ah, oh, she's, you're looking there like, glass half full again, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so annoying. Well, it's annoying because that person doesn't know how to do that. Yeah. And they probably wish they could and they just don't know how, so they find it annoying. Yeah. Well, luckily I don't have to so, do many of those people on a daily basis. <laughs> so that's true. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I deal with my my kids, my wife, and then a couple of people at work. Luckily, you know, being a police officer, you gotta deal with a million different people every single day, but yeah. Many of which have a yeah. glass uh, is a mostly empty mentality, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, I, man, there was something I just saw about the. Oh gosh, I can't remember what it was, but it was something about glass half empty, glass half full. You know, I'm just glad there's a glass here. It was something, <laughs> yeah. something yeah. like that. That was just like a completely different perspective. You, you know that. Okay, yeah, whatever. It's half empty. It's half full. I have a drink here, and I'm gonna, yeah. you know, refresh my, my body. You yeah. know, so it's, yeah, it's funny. Perspective again. Well, Chad, thank you so much for your time, uh, and, and listeners out there. Um, if you have any, uh, you know, comments or perspectives or experiences, things that we've talked about today, please uh, uh, leave us a comment or. Uh, um, you know, contact with us. Uh, Chad, where can our listeners uh, find your books? They're uh, Amazon is really the easiest place. Nice. You go to Amazon and you can search my name and they'll, they'll pop up there. So that's, that's the easiest way. Great. And do you yeah. have any type of social media, uh, Chad, or are you taking a break from that? I mean, I have, I haven't really posted on any of my author type stuff. Well, that's okay. Um, I mean, I have I a personal ask. Facebook account, but yeah, search it on uh, search it on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, that that's really the easiest thing to do these days. So, 
Sounds great. Well, to our listeners, thanks for listening, and let's build our creed together. All right. Thanks, Chad. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it.